Hello everyone and welcome to the Burgess Podcast, the show where we are opening up conversations about life at sea, discussing hot topics within the industry, as well as offering mental health support and promoting well-being for crew. We also have our very own in-house recruitment team, so if you or anyone you know is currently looking for a new position, please send your updated CV to recruitment at burgessyachts.com or check out our recruitment posts on Instagram at Burgess Yacht Crew. Today we will be talking about some topics which some of you may find triggering, so please do check out the show notes before listening. We are so thrilled to be joined by Melanie White, ex-yachty and author of Behind Ocean Lines, a very personal account of how Melanie struggled with her mental health during her time on yachts. Melanie is so candid in her book, talking about topics that most of us find very hard to talk about, including having suicidal thoughts. And she was as open in our chat, which I found really humbling. For people struggling with their mental health, not being able to talk about it can be one of the worst parts of the illness. And I think that by being so vulnerable, Melanie is helping to open up these conversations around mental health. Her story helps us to break down the stereotypes and take the stigma out of something that affects us all. Melanie, thank you so much for talking to us today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I read your book, uh, Behind Ocean Lines, and was so touched by just how open and vulnerable you were about your experiences of poor mental health while working in yachting. What inspired you to write the book? I think the the prime thing that inspired me was, well, actually, it, it was written initially for myself. So I was writing it for me to comprehend what had happened in my first 18 months of yachting. And I started while I was working still in the industry. And then by the time I got 34,000 words in, I realised I was actually writing to somebody. And it was as though the fourth wall had been broken. And actually, I was kind of corresponding with a friend. So then I thought, hang on, I think I've actually got the beginnings of a book. And this is the kind of book that I would want to read. I really enjoy narrative non-fiction or memoir and like dipping into other people's lives. And I realised the more bizarre things are happening to me in the yachting industry, the more I thought, well, actually, that's something I would want to read about if I wasn't in it. But also considering the topic area of mental health and the lack of information we seem to have about mental health at sea it made sense to kind of add to the body of literature or the lack of body of literature that we have in this area so for me that was the inspiration and then really actually that when I exited my prime goal was to get the book published and it's um I mean for you was it like when you started writing it was it almost like writing a journal yeah it did start as a journal although it also I find it hard to describe the style of writing because it's so bare all that even to me sometimes it felt shocking and also liberating that I would be writing that bluntly or you know seeing the words on the page actually really allowed me to understand what was going on inside and you know journaling is a hugely powerful tool for people to work out what's going on with them but it's actually only maybe five years after I first started like writing it I thought oh you know actually I was working through what you would maybe do at therapy or I don't think it was the beginning of that journey. So yeah, yeah, I find it hard to describe the writing style, but I guess, yeah, it is like a journal entry, but to a friend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I enjoyed from it is that the chapters were short, 
but punchy. And there were some real nuggets in there where I would close the book, sit back and think, wow, you know, we'll go into details later. But um, for those people who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up working on yachts? Yes, so I had done the classic thing of being um, herded through the normal system of going to school, getting good grades, going to university. I did um, a chemistry degree, much to my dismay. I realised, gosh, this is really hard and absolutely not what I want to do with the rest of my life. You know, struggled through that degree. Of course, by that point, you've, you're starting to pigeonhole yourself and thought, oh, now I need to work in sciences. And I ended up doing a really... A graduate job that didn't fulfil me and at the time my partner, my boyfriend, he had been working all of that time for luxury um, boat builders and had kept up his um, relationships with the owners of those boats that he'd commissioned um, and would often go off and race or do deliveries for them and then eventually one of those owners was looking for a couple to take on um to join a bigger boat where they needed a kind of a first mate and a stew and he said well we could do it why don't we do it and you're really miserable in that job so shall we just take the plunge and give it go and so that's really that was my entrance and I think I I say quite frankly in the book really it's it's a lot of luck the industry the anguish of people needing to dock walk or find their first job you know that is it's so tough at the beginning and so that was very fortunate for me and I absolutely understand my privilege in having had that entrance via my boyfriend at the time and then you were on your first yacht yes and I mean you talked about in your book about the complete change of a lifestyle Um, Mm -hmm. that that, and the effect that it had on you can you tell Mm -hmm. us a bit more about that yeah I mean everything about my whole life changed you know I was away from home I wasn't doing any of the things I would normally be doing I was trying to learn a new job trying to learn and get to know people I was living with who I was also working with I mean all of these things in itself are huge obstacles or challenges for anybody so I think that's really unique to the yachting industry and and seafaring in general is that you have to put down a life and start a new one at sea and you have to give 100% of yourself and something I really I've I've heard this spoken about uh, in kind of the hospitality industry is if you give 100% of yourself you no longer have anything left for you And I think that's exactly what I went into the yachting industry doing. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to give everything to this. And along the way, particularly in the first 18 months, I ended up losing myself in that process. And I think that first boat was a real baptism of fire. And I was really thrown into a lot of heavy sailing as well, very early on. And bearing in mind, I was learning sailing from scratch as well. That was also extremely taxing. Because it was like all this new jargon. Anybody that knows sailing knows there's about three different words for one thing. You know, it's it's so baffling. Uh, and, you know, it did take me a long time before I was comfortable on deck. And um, that does take time. It wasn't just that I was steering. I did need to do my fair share of being on deck too. And so the amalgamation of that was a lot of hard work and yeah, blood, sweat and tears, really. And it's um, it, it's an area that I'm always interested in talking to people about. Did it help having your boyfriend, George, 
there with you by your side because I imagine a lot of crew who join a yacht especially you know green crew who join a yacht for the first Mm. time they're trying to integrate into a team that's already formed you must have to deep deep for confidence and you know to to try and integrate with that team yeah and and you're also entering into whatever culture that boat has so there's you know you don't really know what you're getting when you're particularly when you're joining boats that have already been working together you know a fair amount of time I know that a lot of people have to kind of go in and mold themselves to whatever will allow them to survive the best um I think particularly working with George that definitely kept me in the you know the rocky patches at the beginning we were really in it together and I think the subsequent years we had where we then worked up and had a very fulfilling career part of this benefit of that and part of the enjoyment was the fact we were doing it together Mm. and you you have that other person that can kind of just spur you on and knows you very deeply and so I think couples sometimes do get bad reps in the industry and I think sometimes it can be a very very difficult thing and put a big strain on a relationship but at the time I think it actually made us quite quite a strong couple and ultimately you have each other for support don't you until you've had that time to integrate and I mean what advice would you have for green crew joining a yacht who don't know anybody on board for integrating into that team for you know for finding that support system that you need just to to fit in I think there are a few things I would suggest one thing I would say is before going on maybe just write down three things that are part of you and your moral compass and things that you feel are very integral to who you are and kind of use those as your anchors going on and if there's ever anything that feels uncomfortable then kind of assess whether that's going against the grain of who you are as a person and then that way you can identify really where sources of discomfort might be coming from. The other thing is by having that on a piece of paper you can be like well other things I need to do that mean I do fit in aren't compromising who I am as a person and so you might find that you I mean it's also the wonderful thing about yachting you meet people from all over the world and and you kind of have an insight into lots of other people's lives you can throw yourself in wholeheartedly and that might mean that you change a bit but if you kind of know who you are at the core then that will help you integrate Mm. and I think if there is then over a long period of time something that really really doesn't feel right and it just feels like you can't cope on board then don't feel like that's the only boat you will ever work on or that every boat is like that. I think that's really important for, for crew retainment in the industry as a whole, maybe not for that boat. Um, but I think particularly when I went into the industry, there was this mentality that if you didn't see out the full season, then that would be seen as this huge red flag. And I think slowly there seems to be this change in people's mentality where it's like, well, actually, if someone's left, is it just that that was really not the right boat for them or that they weren't safe or you know there are lots of other reasons that crew leave boats not them being the reason yeah you know yeah 
but yeah I think as green crew going on and just having done a bit of soul searching before you go on yeah and it and like you said it's it's very true that it's okay to join a yacht and find that they're not the team for you you know that it's not the yacht for you I've spoken to many crew who have felt like they haven't quite fit in and you know we can't be liked by everyone and we can't like everyone and it's okay to to walk away from that boat and find a different one it's you know it's finding um finding your tribe isn't it it's yeah 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 finding your tribe is really important so you were on your first yacht and you met the captain and Chief Stew, which was a rocky relationship, to say the least. Mm-hmm. One of the points that I picked up in your book was that you felt like a nuisance to them. Mm-hmm. Why did you think this? What, what made you feel like that? I think I felt like a nuisance because it felt like nothing I could do was right. And so whenever I would do a job or a task that they'd set me off on, there was very little mentoring there in a way that was actually conducive to learning well and so they would set me off on a task and then they'd have a conflict over what I should be doing and actually then set me off on something different and then after that that would be unfinished because they'd want me to I was spread far too thin and that was exacerbated when then I kind of stepped into the chef's role and they didn't employ anyone to take over the work that I'd been doing and expected me to do I mean, no. Uh, now I look at it and I think that's just madness. There's no chef that can do three course meals, you know, full fine dining and do beds and heads. I mean, it's just madness. So no wonder I was struggling in that first 18 months. And I think it's, yeah, feeling like a nuisance was mainly just because I was just, it felt like I was forever in trouble or never getting it right. I think combined with the fact that when you're working with couples, they're also operating their relationship you know, you see this all the time, you know, on the classic ones on Below Deck and them saying, oh, no, these people are getting together. This is going to be a nightmare for the rest of us. If that relationship isn't solid, if if you let that seep into working practices and people getting caught up in arguments and, and things that just really shouldn't have a place in the workplace, that can be really, really difficult. And that couple I worked with were extremely fiery. Mm. And that's it was actually scary at times. Yeah, I mean, reading about them, I've known couples like that before, but I've never had to live with them. You know, I've worked with them, but can then leave at the end of the day, Mm. you know, to be with in that environment for 24 hours a day, where you were seen as a, I guess, an easy target for them to vent their fiery relationship. I mean, you mentioned using your words you identified the best means of survival to do anything that would avoid a flare-up I mean how did this affect your mental health I mean that must have been so stressful no I mean I just I couldn't be myself that's the crux of it or I just try and remain quiet or unseen or just kind of try and blend into the background I mean to the point where I remember on one occasion I've been told by the captain to sit and do something for him because he needed I think passport sorting for some some guests coming on I can't remember what it was I sat down and she literally came over and was like I need to sit there and there was uh, five or six other places she could have sat which were all next to me or near me or in the region that she would need to sit it was all about asserting dominance and this is where I am and you can't replace me and it was 
so difficult. And what are you, know, what are you gonna do, say no? I mean, maybe now I would, but at the time I was 22, you know, this is nine years ago when I was terrified of them. I wouldn't have been like, well, can't you sit over there? Nowadays, I would have said that, but also they were, they could be so terrifying. Like, like I had said in the book, I just did anything that was a means of survival. And that's quite a mindset, isn't it? In the workplace and in the living place. At the time, did you feel like you were being bullied? In all honesty, I think... I didn't recognise it as bullying. I just thought there was something wrong with me. I definitely felt some kind of weakness or that it's very hard to put into words. Now I can just see it black and white. This this is telltale bullying, textbook bullying. But at the time, I just thought, you can't be bullied in your adulthood. Surely not. You know, this is something that happens at high school or you know this doesn't happen to me in a professional working place but of course it does you know it can happen and I think that's where not having anybody kind of calibrate what's going on when yachts are kind of their own ecosystem and you're not interacting with other people or other people aren't visually seeing what's going on and being like hang on this isn't right because it can all be hidden I say behind closed doors but on board it's really hard to work out what's going on and I just felt like there was something wrong with me or that actually I was going a bit mad and at one point this is now when I look back I think oh god Mel this was just because you didn't have any energy left to be able to express yourself but I would quite often talk and not be able to form sentences anymore I've been that kind of belittled that when I was speaking things would just come out in a jumble because I couldn't vocalize what I needed to say properly and then they'd be like can you understand her is she is she is she talking English and it was like mortifying it was like I was being it's I guess it's how a toddler feels this frustration of like I'm saying this but they're not understanding me and I couldn't understand that actually that was my chemical makeup in my brain was actually really struggling to fire because I had kind of just been beaten down and so that's that's really hard to get over when those people remain in in your orbit at the same time as you're trying to adjust to this new lifestyle learn this new job learn this new language of the yachting industry yeah and then you had to deal with sexual harassment on board the boat can you tell us a a bit about what happened and how it affected you yeah so the captain even even now when I talk about it, I mean, it was one of the hardest bits in the book to write because when I wrote it, I wrote it very um, briefly and then I kept moving, I moved on. And it was my editor that said, I think we need to fill this out. And interestingly, I'd had the piece legaled and the lawyer, I had to work very carefully on making sure that the book wasn't, you know, causing any defamation or anything like that whilst also trying to make sure that what actually happened to me was spoken about and the lawyer was male and what happened was the the captain slapped my ass basically on his way to his cabin and then when he was in the cabin it was like oh my gosh what's he going to do next and he then came out as though nothing had happened and carried on this was after you know months of bullying 
And the amalgamation of this was then a lot of fear because I was like, well, now it's not just words, it's physical. And I was actually extremely scared, but I didn't know how to vocalise that. So initially I wrote about it very briefly and then the lawyer had done a lot of work on, well, we need to make sure we're not defaming anybody and blah, blah, blah. And is it even that big a deal if um, if someone slaps your ass? And that very quite it was in it was in a text box and I remember the editor who was a, a woman was like this is exactly why we need to expand this section because this is where we don't understand in society how minimal or smaller quote-unquote less important you know it doesn't seem that big at all acts actually perpetuate extreme violence towards women and so I then had to one, I had to live and board. He didn't touch me again uh, because actually a month later he he was replaced. But there was no guarantee then for me nothing else would happen. And so I was then just living in fear that something else would happen. And also I realised that this wasn't just me that was going through this. Years later and I'd say oh, people would be like, oh, yeah, well, that's happened to me, that's happened to me. And actually obviously the Me Too campaign or movement came out um, but it didn't scratch the surface of yachting. There's been various articles and newspapers, etc. Nothing has managed to penetrate the yachting industry and, it, you know, properly expose what is going on. And so that's why I felt it very important that I didn't hide it in the book. And I talk about how, you know, catcalling, etc. It, it's in a pyramid. At the bottom, you have the guys that think, well, I'm I'm not related to any kind of, you know, sexual violence against women. I'm I'm an ally to women. But their mate might shout a woman at the street about how she looks or, you know, catcalling, any of those things makes a derogatory joke about a woman. I mean, I've worked in crew messes where guys are just showing each other stupid porn videos, which are really degrading to the women that are in the video. And they'll just sit there and laugh. And then you think, oh, hang on. You know, they think they're just being a mate. But actually, they're not calling out misogynistic behaviour. That makes it okay. Because somebody else in the um, group has decided, oh, this is okay behaviour. So I can I can just slap a girl's ass. That's fine. Or I can ping her bra strap as I walk through the crew mess. Because nobody's going to say anything. Because it's, it's just a joke. It's just banter, right? And that holds them up. So they can do that. Mm. But the issue is then another guy has seen that. And they're on the next stage of the triangle where they're like, well, you know, that's okay behaviour. Then I can just, you know, I can just finish when I'm having sex with somebody, even though they've said no, you know, I just, I just want to finish. So I'll finish. And they don't think that's rape, but it is, you know, and it's, it's these layers of very damaging behaviour that then keeps the man that's at the top of the pyramid that has seen all of this behaviour be seen by their peers as okay being able to be ex- extremely violent against women. And so these are the people you see then in the newspapers that have been sent to prison for, for awful crimes. But actually that's all been kept up by that one guy at the bottom mm. that didn't point out that his mate shouldn't be, you know, slapping a girl's ass, a woman's ass. So, I mean, that had to make it into the book in the end. It was the only option for me was to really spell it out it's something that's very frustrating as a woman that you even have to do, but that education needs to be there. And so for me, it was very 
demoralizing at the time but now at least I can talk about it you know for a long time I couldn't talk about it or I just have to skip over it completely yeah yeah I know you mentioned earlier some people will read that and think not that bad Mm. I always try to relate it to the the individual's home life how would you feel if somebody walked past your girlfriend or wife and just slapped her ass or pinged her bra would you be okay with that and if you're not okay with that why is it okay to do it to to your colleague it's it's just about showing respect isn't it we're living together working together you you have to respect each other and not push those boundaries yeah and and not being you know everybody's body is their own just because we have to share everything about our lives on this boat does not mean that you share my body too. You know, you don't own it. And I think that is a really important message that we, I think people can just end up in this ulterior world on board where only the boat exists and the life cycle of that boat is just the only one you know. But it's just not okay behaviour. You you cannot do it. And... I mean, you had George on board as that support network for a crew member who doesn't have that. When that treatment is coming from the senior heads of department, the captain, it's very hard to know where to go for help and support. Yeah, it is very difficult. And that is one of, I think, the biggest battles that the industry have. You don't have that onboard HR. You're working with egos and characters where yes that can exist on land but you you just don't get the respite you take them home with you and I think this is where it's extremely important for people who are friends and family knowing that someone they love is going into the industry to really try and identify what's normal for them and how they correspond with you because if you're on board and you feel like you can't escape it there might be some telltale signs for other people that they're struggling and I think one of the most important things that I say when crew are taking leave and come going home and have some time off finally with family try and make sure that the questions you're asking them of course everyone wants the gossip everyone wants oh you know tell us your wildest story that happened to you this season and things like that ask them how they are and if they're really okay because you know, I came away, I mean, my parents only knew the depth of how bad it had got years down the line, bearing in mind at one point I went home to them. Um, and this isn't a failing on their part. But I think people, you just want to switch off from the boat. And then everyone's asking you everything about it, but nothing about how you are. That's your window of opportunity to get your support or to work out, okay, should I be going back to this boat? Will it get better? Or in the middle of a season, you know, am I really struggling? And, you know, does anyone notice? And I think when somebody at home can be like, hang on, are you really okay? That can be the beginning of a little shift where you're just like, actually, there might be a plan that I can put together where I can change what's happening and that this isn't just a lost cause. Yeah. We're all very good at putting masks on and there's an expectation that you're living the dream and you don't want to admit to anyone that it's anything other than perfect. Mm. 
what are some of the signs that people can look out for? So common ones are naturally changes in behaviour might be quite difficult for somebody to identify. Say with your crewmates, if somebody's behaviour seems to change quite specifically, have they were they a really timid, quiet person and now all of a sudden they're super loud and blazing? Is it vice versa? Is it this person was full of life and now they're becoming withdrawn? Are they not wanting to sit with everybody for their crew meals or are those characteristics the opposite of what they were? Are they eating loads and loads compared to what they used to? Are they not eating anything? All of a sudden, are they skipping meals? Are they persistently saying that they're not sleeping well? I think in the industry, this is a really common one. So taking aside bullying and harassment, you naturally work very long hours and don't get very good sleep, slash you get broken sleep, particularly when you're on delivery. Everybody gets into this mentality where I'm so sleep deprived. Well, I, you know, it can become a competition where I, you know, I had to get up and check the anchor X number of times and, you know, those kind of things. Really, if somebody's saying like, I'm not getting any sleep, as soon as sleep is out of the window, the nutrition, everything else, the mood, that will just fly out as well. So really take note of that. So there are things, it does seem arbitrary and you know you're also busy would you notice but I think those are some signs and tell me did you did you notice any of these signs in yourself at this time no so I knew I was losing sleep I knew I wasn't eating enough um that's a very common thing for me when I'm very stressed I don't put any emphasis on sitting down for a meal now I know that's a telltale thing about me but at the time I didn't no, I didn't notice them. And I, I genuinely thought I also suffered from, at one point, a really bad kidney infection. And interestingly, I think Medair did a, a report looking into what the most common ailments are in the yachting industry. And that is the number one ailment in the interior is kidney infections. And to be honest, I think it's through lack of hydration. And I just wasn't drinking enough. They were hot days. We were working very, very uh, well, we were working really hard, and I just wasn't sitting down to drink at all. And so I got a very bad kidney infection. And again, going back to the, the, there can be a minor ailment that pops up before somebody has a mental breakdown. That was mine. I had this big kidney infection that was very difficult to shift. I think I was on two or three different antibiotics before I could get rid of it, because I also couldn't rest properly because I was so stressed. And then I... I hit my foot I you know I hurt my foot and then I had to come off the boat because I'd hurt my foot it was like all these signs of saying you need to stop you need to stop yeah and, and these were some of the moments in the book where you know I could relate to uh in certain periods of my life where you you were saying things to yourself you know in these moments of severe pain with your kidney infection I don't have time for this I don't have time for self-care my time is better spent elsewhere and and you talked about becoming a stranger to your own body um Mm -hmm. ignoring the signs and that's just I don't know that's reaching a point where you have come last in your list of priorities in your life yeah absolutely and I compare it to you know the things that a child you know the things a child needs I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, you know, I need to sleep. 
they are just like the most basic things that any human needs and we've conditioned ourselves into thinking that that can be put second to our working lives and that's not to say that I think we should just become very blazing and being like well I'm never going to put anything before myself I think the reality is we will always do that to some extent but actually making sure those three core things are covered should be enough to keep people going in a way that is actually that they're living and not just surviving yeah and yeah we all want to be good at our jobs and you know perform well in life but we can't do any of those things without the self-care you know we we need to have a healthy nourished body and mind to be able to succeed so self-care has to be the number one priority doesn't it it has to be first on our list we have to make time to have that glass of water do 10 minutes of meditation even five it's it's, it's not mm. about long periods of time it's just just making time yeah and I think it's actually this is something that people have asked me subsequently like well what can you do when you're on board and you're working 18 hours you know how am I meant to take the time for myself and and it is about reframing those acts as actually things that are for you so you might not think oh you know if you're just sipping on your water or I don't know you've gone to a you know that's actually time for you And I used to, that was actually where I used to be able to get two minutes of peace. When I used to go, I was like, right, I'm going to go on the loo break. And after the loo, I would be like, no, you don't need to rush off. I'd put the loo city down, sit back down. And I'd be like, right, you can, you're going to set a timer on your phone and you're doing two minutes because nobody's coming in to disturb you. And that's how I used to carve two minutes for myself out because your head will always be like, but I need to get back, but I need to get back. Mm. Um, But actually the more you can do that, the the more you've realised you've done something for yourself. And then the other thing I used to do was, and again, this is where writing came in, but separate to me writing the book, I would always write down three things that I was grateful for before I went to sleep every night. And I'd make that a habitual practice for myself. And, you know, it only had to be, yeah, literally three lines, but it just allowed me to go to bed with something either different in my mind or something positive that wasn't, I've got X, Y, and Z to do the second I wake up. And that's another way that you can kind of carve out some space for yourself on board. And slow the mind down. Yeah. So severe kidney infection, you then hurt your foot, you you were sent home. Mm-hmm. And you saw your doctor who diagnosed you with antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Did this come as a surprise to you? Yes. I literally thought oh my gosh, I can't be depressed. Am I depressed? But actually, I, of course I was. Like, I, I wasn't sleeping. I just felt so, so low. I could not spark any joy in anything I did. And this is where I, you know, I say I became a stranger to myself. There is very little you can do to try and bring yourself out of it. And sometimes it takes some big marker to say, oh, hang on a minute. No, you're not okay. I think there's also a lot of stigma against medication and I had that. I thought, hang on, I can't take antidepressants, That's that makes me a complete failure. But actually, I had a very short course and they can be a very powerful tool to help people just regain a bit of level footing to start thriving again. It, 
I think there's this common misconception that you just be put on them and then you're just going to be on them forever. And for some people that's true, but for other people when you're just going through a really bad patch in life, they can be there as another tool, another coping mechanism. And actually, yeah, I talk about that throughout the book of that stigma that I had. You know, I just desperately didn't want to take these pills because I thought, oh, well, then I've really hit rock bottom and I didn't see it as something that was going to help me get out of the rock bottom. You talk in your book, is this when you started having suicidal thoughts? Yeah, so I then felt extremely lost because I'd come home to my parents and under the guise of the boat, I was recovering from a physical injury. But actually, you know, my mental health was in shattered. It was shattered. And yeah, I, I realised I didn't really know who I was at sea. And I didn't really know who I was on land anymore. I just felt completely lost. And that's when I just felt complete despair. I thought, oh my goodness, I don't belong anywhere. And even though I was surrounded by people that loved me, I couldn't feel the love. And I think that's something that is very hard for people to comprehend, is that if you haven't experienced depression before, but somebody you love is, keep you know, keep telling them how much you care for them. Keep checking in because actually they can't feel it (laughs) they actually can't feel it it's like you have to break through this wall and just keep reminding them you care because it's very hard to hear and believe and so the more you reinforce it or remind them eventually it will sink in and they'll be like oh no I, I can be lovable it's not that they're unlovable but they feel it and so that was hard for me because I felt like I should be getting better because I was around my family. But actually, I was so lost by that point. I, Like I say, I couldn't, I couldn't feel the support that was there. And that's when suicidal ideation started kicking in. Thank goodness I never acted on it. But that's not to say, you know, obviously people do. And that's extremely serious. Um, and a lot of my work having a you know, left the industry. And part of the reason for publishing the book was to make sure that people understand you can come out of it, you know, and people can thrive. But actually, we need to do something about supporting the people when they're in it. Uh, And it's not going to be that obvious. No, no. And that's the difficulty with it, isn't it? That your loved ones don't know that that's what's going on inside your mind until you start either showing signs or talking to somebody. Mm. So what kept you going? What was the next step for you? So bizarrely, it was that, oh, I have to go back to sea. And I think for a lot of people, that wouldn't be the obvious. But I think it's maybe just part of my character trait. I needed to feel that if I was leaving the industry, I was leaving because I felt it was completed and not because I was just catapulting out of it. And so for me, I knew my best way of kind of recovering was to go back, meet the demons, and try and establish myself in a way that could kind of just build me up again. And so in many ways, the sailing also became my healing. So I went back to the boat. Also, you know, my partner at the time was still on board, We were on a contract, which meant if one of us left, the other one lost their job as well. We were employed as a couple. I mean, really, really rough. Like, obviously, nowadays, I would have negotiated that well out of a contract. 
but these are things you just don't know when you're entering in and you haven't taken you know your first job yet and so I had that huge pressure as well of well this is his dream if I leave he loses his job and if we leave mid-season then how how do we get another job so I decided to go back to the boat I opened up to him I told him that I felt depressed that I'd been given these antidepressants and actually he opened up and said well I feel depressed too and that was something that really blew the door open then I thought hang on a minute this isn't just me something is really going wrong on board here we battled through we said right well we'll we will at least get to the end of the season but we know we've got this end plan you know we had a regatta to end the season with as well and we we loved the racing so it was like okay well this will be our cherry on top we've just got to get to the regatta and then we'll assess what we do from there and then it kind of felt through like a fortune really the captain the the other person had left to have so his partner had left to have their first child by that point and um the captain was replaced with a different captain who was actually a friend of ours And that just changed the whole game completely. And this is where it's like, well, find a tribe. Because actually we stayed on the same boat and we we still worked incredibly long hours. We still were spread thin, but we had a real family feel on board. And that's what made, that allowed me to do the healing. And I think that's where, you know, the book as well isn't just all doom and gloom. It, It does shine on the really great things about yachting. The things I really did enjoy, the the adventures we had as well, and the cooking. I think the cooking also became a healing process. I finally had the time to spend in the galley and I could create all of these menus and that was a way of me expressing myself. And I started using the produce, you know, in its most organic form, kind of. This is where you get the produce. We're in the Arctic. This It's like the most humble form of cooking when you're cooking with whatever's fresh, and I just saw that as such a, a, like a heavenly experience, really. And so that's how I gradually started rehabilitating. And then by the time I was in, you know, I did it for five years. By the time I was in my last year, the book was really nearly there. I just thought, I, I started talking to people saying, I'm actually writing about this and this is what happened. And and loads of other people saying, oh, well, I've had depression before. I know what that feels like. Oh, I've hit rock bottom before. Or there'll be other examples in the industry where people are struggling and I was just like oh someone needs to do something about this and that's how I kind of completed the journey it kind of became okay now it's to help make things better for others as well and I I guess it does depend on personality type but that's something that always fulfills me and also that's why people work in service people that love service jobs are normally because they feel good when they're providing an experience for guests and so that's also a great part of it when you can actually just work in a way that meets your attributes well. And I think that's a a really important message that a career in in yachting or in the maritime industry Mm. is a fabulous career. It's, you know, you get to meet some amazing people, you know, experience different cultures, uh, travel, you know, uh, it's an incredible career. It's just about finding the right boat for you and, you know, personally, my message is always when you're struggling, it's okay to say you're struggling. It's okay. We're not, we build the yachting industry as this picture perfect Mm. bubble where everything is wonderful. 
there will be moments where you will struggle. It's okay to talk about it, which leads us on nicely to our closing question is, you know, where can people go to? I've always said that there's always someone that you can talk to, regardless of what your, you know, issue concern is, there's always somebody. Mm, Definitely, there is. I think particularly in the last few years, this this has become more widely known mental health and, and how it sits with all of us is gradually becoming more well known. And now there are some services that are out there that you can tap into I know that in your um, signature you've got Yoku help I think that's one of the best resources that people can use I think that should be up in every single crew mess that captions need to print that out and stick that up so that's by Ice One they have a 24-hour helpline and I, I work have worked with Ice One in recent years and the book is there. The call handlers have read the book. They know what it's like on board. You're not speaking to people that don't understand yachting. They do understand exactly how, well, they might not be able to be in your shoes, but they can do the empathy work there with you. And that's an incredible resource. I will say that that's really for use when you're kind of need to speak to somebody. It's not like going to a therapist where you have that continuity of care. Another thing that you can do is some training. So there are places that provide mental health first aid training. Um, Seize the Mind is one of those. And you kind of get the core knowledge base that allows you to identify and understand your own mental health and then maybe recognise the signs and symptoms in someone else and know how to signpost them. I think a common misconception is sometimes that, hang on, we shouldn't be training people as therapists. That's not what the training does. It just gives you the tools to be able to understand what mental health is, how can I look after my own, and what can I do if I think somebody else is struggling. One thing I'd love to see is that, you know, everybody in the industry have something, some kind of awareness training, but if captions can take that on and do it with their crew at the beginning of the season altogether, even give people the opportunity often there's budgets you can put towards training and you know it really frustrates me that we don't give junior students more opportunity to use those budgets and things like that you know put people on courses that have that natural ability to under to read empathy as well so you've got the option of training there and then of course it would be fantastic if we saw this make it into some kind of policy there's been a lot of talk about it making into STCW and that it should be this um, compulsory thing. Hopefully we'll see that, but it might not be for 10 years. And so actually you can get ahead of the game. Do do it, do it now. It will help you out. And um, also read the book. <laughs> There's lots of things in the book that um, can just give you a bit of company when you're on your bunk and you're feeling on your own I really want the book to be a friend to people read the book definitely I I highly recommend it um yeah I've I've never worked on yachts I I work in the management side of it but it's given me a real insight you know I learned from the crew I learned from how they live their lives from the crew directly and this has given me a real insight into what life on board is actually like which I found really useful. 
Um, so thank you for sharing your story, Melanie. Thank you. Again, it's a word I keep using, but I think, you know, thank you for being so vulnerable because I think a lot of people need to hear more people talking about their experiences to know that they're not on their own, that we all have moments of struggle um, and we just need to be comforted by the fact that we're not alone. There are other people who have gone through these same struggles and there are people out there who are ready and willing to talk. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you for having me.